Radio Boise, in collaboration with The Modern Hotel, presents Campfire Stories, readings by notable local authors recorded live from the patio at The Modern Hotel in downtown Boise. He's an amazing visual artist, uh, an accomplished scholar, and a world-class poet of five collections with his sixth collection coming out in the spring. The Worcestershire Whitman of the West, please put your hands together for Martin Corliss Smith. Wuss. Wuss. Yes, it's, it's close enough. It's not bad. <laughs> I'm not holding that thing, am I? Oh, bugger. I have to hold this, do I? For a moment. Are oh, you getting a clip? Okay. Okay. Well, I suppose you'll just have to interrupt me. Can you hear me? Lift it closer to my. Yeah. Intrude my personal space with a phallic object. <laughs> Such is life. Um, so, thank you. Um, Chris, wherever you are, probably having a drink. Um, oh, there he is. Hi, Chris. Um, I meant because it's a bar, not because you drink too much. Um, <laughs> thank you for inviting me. Thank you, The Modern, for setting this up. Um, and thank you, Alan, for introducing me. Um, I'm not sure I'm impeccably dressed tonight. I'm wearing my official party shirt, <laughs> which... Um, as my girlfriend said, was to offset my stuffy Englishness. So, let's see if it works. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, I have um, a new manuscript on the go, which is, um, well, the odd thing about finishing a manuscript is, is uh, well, it's a book that's coming out in the spring, is that then you can start writing poems that belong to it that are unofficial. So I, I suspect there's no, difference between the poems out of the book and in the book. I'll just shut up and read. Um, the openings. Maps of a pilgrimage. My poem wandering a half moon with Europe in the shadows of its other continents. A broken limb that rests like a pier into the lake, the solitude of home. A choice of staying and thus ending choice. A pine grows through the center of the house and reached into the room we could not move so climbed up through its barbs out to a memory of stars. It was my body I saw climbing through my house, my mother and my mind. The pine had been a thought, hence out of time. It was as real as happiness. The night that grew with intermittent joy a story with all hiding contained in easy reach, all lost at hand, rain and an ocean's wind, an eye inside the skull which boats across the skein, black depths, oil of continent, beauty of death, her open look and knowledgeless season. What energy drives one to move on a limitless sea towards what directionless, motherless dream, Skiathus or Helena, the trill of a single voice above the lapping, to tune the immediate silence, pizzicato archipelagos unseen, and what I crawled out to where I had ocean and secure, where I had blood and celestial support, out to a chainless step and peer into the black liquor, hopeless. Travel where we meet loneliness and anxious spills over to make me feel for her, her outward incomprehensibility. An Amazon of fear draws past a pine tree pyre born out of the glossy forest floor into its own oncoming gale. 
Field of seed drawn sideways, draped the wool of shepherd winters, a world to move across, trans-infinite, the birth of something lost, love like a great arched chasm. We find ourselves inside, remind me, mother, before you were, remind me in our ocean above the roof, where the splintered pine grows into night, cold to the starry snows, pine in an ecstasy of growth, a punt over a moat, for I don't know what I need to know, a pine on fire, the spirit of the house, a sacrifice for I don't know, a shadow candle burning down into the night for I don't know, my lover on another world, my mother and her mother too, a shudder through the empty room, I don't know, I don't know. Without thought, or project, structure, in response to her devouring life, I write where nothing can be said for consolation, but for occupation of the senses, perforated by a shock at how much weight a conversation can lay down upon your will or mind or soul. A hill, imagine. On a hill, let's say, and from it, just as soon as we can think, a charging rider, full assailant in inexorable pursuit, as soon as you can think, an army with you as their charge, a motion set in motion, an inevitable attack one knows and can for moments look away, but there can never be the peace before one thought. Um, I started um, to respond foolishly to some um, requests for poems that I can never really do. Um, so it's quite good fun writing a poem if you're requested by a magazine or something to write a poem, and then it turns out to be entirely unusable by them. Here is such a poem. The poem is an atemporal sacrament to being Ignorance may well proceed and survive conversion and knowledge. The poet and reader remain, but the event of conversion is atemporal. The verticality of the lyric is not depth. It is a folding of surface, the book's technology. Because the poet survives the experience, sacrament, and other ritual is written, it might be that the truth of the poem resides in the experience of coming to write the sacrament anew. The lyric can be said to exist in the space between self and other, or, or self and landscape, or past and present. But it's the middle spot, and it exists in a sea of mediation, the instance of which points not only to the specific instance of description, but to its necessary part in an infinite realm of similar instances of being. Being, if housed, is the two aspects, the determined instant and the infinite backdrop. I might choose to despair of mediation or revel in it or both, but the resolution of the lyric is neither conclusion to being nor solution to mediation. It is over, it is over only insofar as it is left. The poem that escaped from silence knew of its history before it was finished, knew its nature and its forgetting. In the short breath of its making, in the long absence that stretches out before and after its mutter, as though the history of love were born in one short kiss and a glimpse of love a begetting, a memory of otherness, as if flat. The moment at least allowed past and future to, to embrace, almost to move to a glow blooming from the instant of the poem. The arrangement itself was the fate of its soul and the life of the instant, the glory of a death foretold. God was lonely for the fact of our mortality. Existence itself bore no relation to absence without us. Fate played the tune upon our accidental birth and even the clumsiest of speech held truth. It was the God inhabited to hear itself aloud. There was no reason to call itself, compelled as it were by an unfathomable urge, always and forever the blue sky surrounding the Renaissance portrait was a void and a halo of blue, but the absence of being. The blue void at the very center of man, the vanishing point, the star. Insensible chamber of being, inscrutable eye hidden behind its shadow. The flattened curse of the leech beetle, the leech moth, hand-sized against the wall and window, the hand-sized leech moth against the light shade and then wardrobe door, the beetle in the wood of the bed, 
knocking, knock, knocking, the glee beetle and the leech moth and the floor unstable on the eaten rafters beneath. Um, I suppose this is, this is about, this is about the um, absurdity and necessity of religious ritual. Holding a herring to the sun. I am stronger than a whole army of foxes that rip me into shreds. I see you there. Is that to illuminate my drink? <laughs> Holding a herring to the sun. It could be a martini, but it's a herring in this poem. <laughs> I am stronger than a whole army of foxes that rip me into shreds, shred me into a whole piece me piece by bit. Hark how it begins, a dollop of affection played into atmosphere. Oh, there's one thing you should know. You, you probably know this. William Morris, um, poet, painter, designer of flowery fabric, a bit like this shirt. Um, skiing of a wealthy manufacturing Oxfordshire family. So, hark how it begins. A dollop of affection played into atmosphere. A herring pointed at the sun, all glittery, as if a talisman. The herring now a symbol of outfished oceans, or herring now a name ill-known. What shall I hold up to the sun that might reflect ironic glory? It is vain to think of cures to superhuman tragedy. Vain to think as well of carpet bombs and fasts. I, who have brought into my den the smirking fox, disabued of charm and status in an urban realm, now to like the poorer humans to elicit aught but fear, a loathing, entering the house, obedient to need. Where in the hierarchical shall we place poetry? A residue of culture when a story held as wrapped, or when a culture wrapped a farthing of anxiety with prudent hope and anticipated ordinary resolve. Seeing him performs all right, but I can't be bothered to read it. To put down my phone, who can put down the possibility of union, even when the gift of union is ultimately lost, deferred to symptoms of an anticipated salve? Darling, it's William Morris at the door. Is he dancing or hawking another car? No, darling, he's attempting to deflate, to deflect the catastrophes of empire with his little press. Oh, bless. Tell him to fuck off, I'm on the phone. The sickness unto death, the evils of revolution, in consolation to his wife, decline and fall. Lord, how shall we gather at the river without texting all our friends? Once in the enemy of time, I rinsed my hate with sadness made of love and furor. Found I could manage to exist without the burden of anticipation answered by desire. I could uphold the instances of being as if by aspect they resolved all matter into incidents that coincide. Hold a herring to the sun, its eye a perfect mirror to the glory of the frozen present in a future memory. I haven't really been paying attention to time. How am I doing? Have I done like 20 minutes? I should do a couple more. I never got my clip. <laughs> I just got all these lights. Okay, I'm going to read a couple from uh, my new manuscript, which is called Bitter Green and comes out in the spring. And I'll have a, probably have a reading for, but you don't have to come again. Um, um, this is the opening poem from that. Maybe I'll just read a couple of little bits, and then we can have some drink. Um, it's about, I suppose the book was going to be about love, and then my mum died, and so it was about love, but it was a slightly less, I should say more than slightly less sexual love. It was, <laughs> wasn't really eros anymore. Yeah. She's a fine-looking woman, of course, but... 
each, I, no, not each to their own. <laughs> the opposite of that. Um, um, okay, a short lyric that opens the book. Um, oh, there's a French word, Hugo. You'll like this. I'm going to mispronounce it just for the hell of it. Ouvrier. Ouvrier, the nightingale. How has it come to this? Love is a severed foot cattled in the guts, a trifle flipped. Love is a tree of apricots all rotted. I can see it breathe, I think. How has it come to this? The fruit my bliss disdained, a trifle shattered in the breeze. Um, uh, another short lyric. The thistle looking over fields, do not forget the instant of its pink fouillard late in the afternoon when a single look from her lifted the torment for a while. Um, I have a, uh, I, I have a, uh, this, yeah, I'll read this. It's called, I had, um, this came on some sort of website and I had someone write a, a question of what it meant to me. Um, I, needless to say, it didn't get an answer. It's like, read the poem. <laughs> um, presents. A, a mild and moony interlude. Happy when alone and not myself. My knowledge of the world is from the world. The reality of the present consists in the absence of a qualifying prefix. The pastness of an event is not the same thing as the event itself. Lying dead in the kitchen, out of place, is your hope in retreat, falling to shadows. The last is the song of an exile. When I first lost hold of the thought, for a while I still imagined I might regain it at any instant. What happens to the light inside you? When you love, perhaps, an equilibrium of exchange. When you're not around, I forget what I might mean to you. You might notice a detail like the trouser leg pulled away from a shirt. Shin, not shirt. Or should. Perhaps the book will be understood. That which is other, of course, remains always other. Unknown, bring your hands together in prayer or applause. Snowing at night, deep green, ice cold feet of a statue, human skinned flowers, carnations, white poppies, the boat, the book, the milky eyeless ocean. A decaying whale blossoms into rainbows. Fish in great society, ignorant of land. The mouth on both sides of the body sack. If you were to focus on nativity, mortality, change, I shall never have done seeing myself in the past. Orpheus in the forest and on among the dolphins. Happily together, in an untidy little sitting room called Confusion Hall. I have no idea what I have written. The severed foot in my stomach is love. We estimate the distances between soldiers. Wednesday, the upper world was utterly bereft. They simply slowly pushed her towards the door. The most important nouns filled with images of the deceased. Strange, piping voices one could not quite make out. We see with one eye and stand upon one leg. Whispering, push the glass aside. Three bodies hung with clothes. All this time, a boat drifting somewhere on the green. And there's a sort of little extra section, a note on absence. The story over, having wished it otherwise. The water surface, friendship.
the drunk euphoric, Good Friday music, not in this lifetime. A fig tree grows, no miserable deed will do. Space and time, dimensions that just bring more of this. For anyone who has a nose, show gratitude. A king sat in a box, 8 p.m. Friday, rain defeating snow, a space too narrow to pass through. Um, I shall read, um, I, I'm going to read one last poem. I think I'll read the prose piece that finishes the book. Um, I have read this before, but none of you were there, so some of you were there. In fact, I remember Kerry Webster saying she liked it, so she's going to have to hear it again. Sorry, Kerry. Let's go. Um, it's called, it's called, it's called, Um, Luna el ultra, the one and the other. Luna being a pun on moon. And now the reflection of the dark house is as real and permanent as the house itself. The moon in the pond, or say the shadow of the statue. Apollo in his golden pomp. The matter of her will no longer matters. Darling, I say, stepping out into the dark, knowing you are not there and cannot hear me. Darling, how can we go on staring at some great uncanny tree? A voice which comes back to me, how can we go on? How can we go on? What great matter are we in all this darkness? The voice again, this darkness. And that icy shard will twist so that I must stay outside alone with my pint of wine and with the hope that the wind in the pines distracts me from the moon's echoes, a psychomantium. At her core, there was either a cold rock or a creature terrified and hidden. A moon blooms back at the sun, incandescent, mordant, reclusive in the open. A young woman trembling in her shoddy life, her mind a moon in retrograde. He is terribly conscious of daily life. His flight to the moon is in sheer desperation. He sees the absurdity of a situation reflected in the moon's dispassionate gaze. The moon is magnified at night. His anxieties, both quite stubborn, both real, nothing to be done with either. The way one lives, a pile of clothes and an unanswered letter. Company kept with the small-minded and disillusioned whether light or sound, whether the moon or the robin, these emotions I am feeling, they are made of blood. The moon then, her effect upon the internal and external oceans, a lonely dream in a medieval dark. If death was the great fear, the eternal enemy, then life was the great gift, the cherished possession, but life was nothing historically bestowed on the ignorant and unworthy. And those making a success of this little game, they are not marked by a devotion to decency or a signaled intelligence or bravery. And what death promised was an end to all the ignoble and squalid concerns. It was a matter of scale in which I marked the low point and the distant clouds indicated something of the measure of the necessary escape. Grand and immortal seeming, natural and ignorant. Today the clouds in dark coils seem to hint at an inferno just beyond the horizon, an approaching army clad in bronze and gold. Martin Carlos Smith, dropping some serious BBC chizak on us. We can see if uh, anyone has any questions they'd like to pose to Martin. He used the words ignoble and squalid properly. 
Does anybody have any questions? You can buy me a drink and ask me a question later, okay? Okay. okay. Round of applause for Martin. <laughs> We're going to take, uh, are we going to, are we going to play the thing now or later? Someone give me a signal. Right now? Okay, we're going to take a, a short break, and then we're going to come back for more fun. So you have about 10, 15 minutes before uh, we gather back together for some more wonderful words. Hello. All right, everybody get settled down here. We have more campfire stories to tell. Cheers. How's everybody doing? Good? Hanging in there? Very cool. We have a special treat for you now. Um, this gentleman was one of the first people I met when I moved here, and I remember he used to have a house over on A Street, uh, which was where a lot of things happened. I remember being in the backyard and it being very late at night, and people maybe had drank too much, and there was a, a, a fight that broke out over Raymond Carver. To the point where, like, people had to be separated, and they were going to fist fight one another. And I remember thinking, these people are crazy, and I love them, and uh, it's indicative of kind of a spirit uh, that has uh, definitely become a trademark for the Boise literary scene. And this gentleman, I think, uh, is responsible for a great deal uh, of the, the passion and portents put towards all things literary in the valley. Between teaching at uh, the cabin and at Boise State University and at uh, his own workshop, Writer's Right Workshop, uh, which has been going on for eight years, he tells me, which is the longest uh, independent uh, high-end workshop I know of. Uh, I think he has mentored uh, more people than anybody I know. Uh, more fiction writers have turned to him for his wisdom and guidance. Um, and he has also helped us in uh, forming the story fort for the Tree Fort Music Festival and this very reading series. And this uh, summer, uh, to great acclaim and fanfare, his debut book, Naked Me, uh, came out into the world uh, and it's uh, with great pride and pleasure that I introduce a uh, friend and mentor and great writer, Christian Wynn. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Al. Albert, as I like to call him. Um, and have since the get-go. And uh, yeah, thanks. First of all, yeah, so very much to all you folks for showing up tonight, and then of course to the modern hotel and bar, um, and Polly, yes, and Michael, and Remy, and Elizabeth, and everybody for hosting this event. It's been awesome all summer. This is a, you know, I guess this is our fourth incarnation. We'll be going, by the way, Mr. Heathcock will be reading in November with a, a great writer out of Butte, Montana, David Abrams, um, and. Did you write down all the specifics for, for October? What do we know about it? You wrote them down. Because we have next month's too, and I always forget like the others who are reading with. Uh, October, we have uh, Sam Silva, Tish Thornton, and Stacy Erickson all coming. Yeah, so there we go. So. These are people that I don't know their writing as well, but the Modern has highly recommended them, so I trust them. So they'll be here. Um, I guess the second Monday in October. But um, to begin with tonight, um, we have Bill Pettit here, this gentleman, who may be responsible for the, the noise earlier. Sorry about the noise. And Radio Boise, Wendy was like feeling so bad about it, but it's okay. We can handle it. As Polly said, first world problems, a little bit of noise in the ear, it's okay. Um, and they've been awesome, by the way, all summer. Boise, Radio Boise has been like super supportive. They've been down here every week setting up the sound system and putting the podcast out there on their website. And I think a future radio show on Sundays is going to evolve out of this whole Campfire Stories thing. And yes, of course they do fantastic. 
And Mr. Pettit, by the way, has made a film trailer that we've been seeing the uh, video of, but can't quite get the audio of. We had a great young uh, a student of mine, actually, Rose Wolf, who, if you guys came to the book launch party back in July, we heard the audio of that after I had finished reading, and it was fantastic. And that's what Bill used for this. We can't quite get the audio, so I'm going to pretend that I'm a 19-year-old young woman, <laughs> which I kind of am in some ways, so that's fine. So Bill, you can roll that, and I'll try to do my best. It was a drink-on-the-job job. Gordo's. My uncle sees hamburger stand down on Shoshol Bay, summer 1989. Everything smelling like copper tone and grease, everything retreating across the wide bell of sky. This was a few months after mom and I moved in with Uncle C, the year after dad left. Billy was the one who'd come by Gordo's afternoons with bourbon and lemonade. It was the summer I turned 19, and Billy was my older brother's excuse me, my older sister's boyfriend, or I guess he was both our boyfriends. He'd see her up at Western on weekends and me the rest of the time. Billy was handsome in a gangly way, long and sharp, sweet despite what he did with my sister and me, and really it was us who let him do it. Uncle C was handsome too, but he was a creep. Even if he did pay me okay and drink with Billy and me while I sold peanut butter milkshakes and double fat boys to housewives and marina dads and kids I'd gone to school with. When Billy'd come around and hand off tall cups, Uncle C would sit on the reach in and look at him like, nice work fucking both my nieces. Then he'd look me up and down, nodding. After dad, Mom had pretty well lost herself, and maybe so had I. Uncle C, she said, was just trying to help us in his own way, mostly by letting Mom sleep in his bed, mostly by saying sorry about his piece of shit little brother, mostly by cornering Billy and getting stories off him. Mom came around some days, sat out front in the sun, wearing cutoffs and her red bikini top. Billy gave her a nice tall drink, Uncle C would sit beside her, and she'd lift her feet onto his lap, where he'd rub her ankles. This always made her smile, which was one thing to take from all that time. So I timed that pretty well, not bad. <laughs> all right. But I'd love to have Bill Pettit come up here and talk about maybe the making of that, or maybe the place of book trailers in the film world, which is kind of an odd thing. I know that um, Tyler McMahon is also a former Boise State uh, MFA guy and uh, I guess an alum. And I know Jason Appleman, I think, who is still here. He was here earlier. He made a, a book trailer for Tyler. Al, did you ever have a book trailer for, your, for Volt, which is, by, by the way, for sale over there through Rediscovered Books, along with some copies of Naked Me. If you have not picked up your copy, you're welcome to go buy them, of course. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks, Aaron and Rediscover for being a part of this as well. And I forgot to thank Martin Corliss-Smith, that smarmy British brilliant poet who was up here earlier and fantastic job. Thank you, Martin. Um, so Bill, come up here and talk about the trailer just for a second. Uh, nice work, Chris. I don't know how you did that. Perfectly insane. <laughs> you, you took away my joke. I was come up here and tell you that you read it wrong, but, but you didn't. Um, yeah, Chris, Chris uh, apparently remembers me saying some brilliant things about book trailers back in, <laughs> in the uh, late spring when we first started talking about doing this book trailer, and, and I can't remember anything that I said that was apparently so brilliant. Um, but uh, <clears throat> I, I want to start out by saying the, the, the news that came for so many of us that Chris had, had published his first book uh, was not at all a surprise, but just, is that me? <laughs> Can I do it? So long overdue, uh, particularly, I, I, I 
met Chris in 2000. He was working a lot of these stories uh, even then. Um, but just seeing the sheer amount of effort and work that went into this book over the years uh, made me want to do something, anything, uh, to, to help him out. And we started talking about book trailers, and they're kind of a strange thing. I've done some filmmaking and a little bit of animation, and it, you know, never tried to tackle something like a book trailer, which is not necessarily a commercial and not necessarily a, a film or a film adaptation of a literary story. So we didn't really know where, where we were going to start. And we had a, actually quite a few different ideas that, that were really cool. But um, we ended up with this, which uh, was, I was counting them last night as they were rendering uh, 3,828 individual frames of what is supposed to be Chris's book cut out uh, in the shape of, of his characters. Um, I do want uh, to do a quick shout out to some of the actors you saw. Um, our, our narrator is L. if you want to wave your hand or stand up. Did a fantastic job. Jason Appleman was uh, the father throwing a fit, and uh, Matt Mormon uh, was the creepy Uncle C, uh, who was looming heavy in the background. Um, Thanks, Bill. I'm going to move this up here and get more light. Thanks, Bill Pettit. And yes, thanks, Matt Mormon and uh, Jay Ruben Appleman and L. Euchre. And Rose Wolf, who is uh, out in Portland these days, but um, did the original narration that we're going to hopefully have out there on um, the YouTubes at, you know, at some point in time. Can you guys hear it okay? Seems like it's still a little bit far away. Is it pretty good? All right. I don't want too much of me. But what I thought I'd do this evening is start with a short piece. I wasn't really planning on reading that first one, but I'm going to read one more short piece that uh, starts in California and ends up pretty much on the border of uh, Nevada and California. And then I'm going to read a Nevada story called False History. So this first one is called Map of California. When you ask me if we'll ever make it out of California, the blood is up in my mouth and fracture is in our ears. We're driving north through the Central Valley at the end of summer, windows down and nothing but Reno ahead. It's all agriculture and cloudless sky and us trying to outrun the life we lost out on the coast. That all seems a decade ago, Big Sur, Pismo Beach, but it was only last month. Now we're trying to figure out how we fucked up that beauty too. The black rock tide pools and the bonfires and the canned beer and the one thing coming into another and the songs and the blank mind of mourning and the collection of sand along the seam and the salt and the elephant seals and starfish and all of us trying to be one thing without asking for permission and the two of us trying to memorize each other's lives. Here is acres of cattle and all of America's produce framing the interstate. We stop for Mexican food in Turlock, where out front you call your brother from the last payphone in the West. He'll be meeting us in Carson. Carson City by dusk. I'll drive into Nevada without you. Another life hunches out there waiting. We will seek it alone. In the dry afternoon, I touch your thin arm, your rib cage and neck, just to say thank you, just to say goodbye. On the table inside, I unfold the map, but then the food comes too fast, and the plates are too hot, and you bow your head as if you are praying, but that's not it, not at all. And this is quite a different story, but it's called False History. Set in Jackpot, Nevada, which some of us are familiar with more than others. And I always like the strange decadence and uh, oddity of the uh, little, uh, I guess, border towns in Nevada. The Wendovers, the Winnemuccas, 
the good old jackpot. So there's no sadder name for a town than jackpot. So anyway, Jeffrey is swimming with Allison, his daughter, watching the white sun fold upon itself a thousand times across tiny blue waves within the lovely timber of Allison's asking, throw me, dad, dunk me. She's a thin, freckled girl with one missing front tooth, smiling. It is a hot afternoon, easily 100 degrees, and the splashed water dries quickly across the beige cement ovaling the pool. Caroline, Jeffrey's wife again, sits in umbrella shade, smoking a menthol cigarette, watching the two of them laugh and lunge and tumble, tumble through the shallow end. Allison is six. Jeffrey and Caroline are 28. They are all in Jackpot, Nevada in the last week of July, a family together on the road back from Vegas, where yesterday afternoon, Caroline and Jeffrey looked into each other's eyes and murmured vows again after three years of divorce. The Everlasting Truth Chapel, it seemed a trapped white place to Jeffrey, and he wonders if he may soon forget the Reverend Clyde Cunningham's throaty commands, his cigarette breath, the tinny recorded organ chords. He wonders if he will forget Caroline standing in her strappy yellow dress, looking up at him with eyes that said, thank you, again, this will be right. We were married three and divorced three. That makes, us, <clears throat> makes this all an even thing, and you are a good man. Jeffrey wonders. He knows he will never lose his part of how it felt, Allison balancing on one foot, then the other, beside him in, the, her, in her orange flowered dress, her white gloved fingers squeezing his hand hard, so pleased. The pool water is tepid but clean and cool enough to be refreshing beneath the charge of this blue sky. He can smell desert through the chlorine as he looks across her, his, over his shoulder and across toward the spotty yellow hills, cresting and shifting in the heat. Jeffrey takes a full breath, falls backwards into the water. It wraps him and he hears Allison squealing as he lets himself sink and lay flat on the pool's gritty concrete bottom. He hears the echoed words, Daddy's fooling, fake drowning again. The warbling rumble of Allison's kicking and slapping as the water presses into him. He opens his eyes, watches her silhouette lurch and bounce within the bright ripples. Caroline's voice slips soft and full. Jeffrey, she says, Jesus. He's such a faker, Allison says. And Jeffrey bubbles the held air from his mouth. He sees Caroline standing at the, at the lip of the pool, one hand on her hip, the other holding a beer can. Hey, Houdini, Caroline says, and he waves, come join the living. His chest is tight, his head feels like it's coming apart, and he thinks, I smoke too goddamn much. He pushes himself up and grabs Allison around the waist. She is so thin, so light, as he throws her, arcs her into the center of the pool. Hot damn, Allison says as she rises to the surface. Young lady, Caroline says, language. He's alive, Jeffrey says, alive. He flexes his biceps, growls. Apparently so, Caroline says, as he saunters back to the chaise lounge, lounge shaking her, her head, her sandals clip-clopping against her heels, against the hot cement. She has hips now, Jeffrey thinks, more than she used to, and meat on her arms. He watches her shift and settle, light another cigarette. Jeffrey has known her for so many years, since they were 14, sophomores at Boise High, and he has always liked the shape of her, the sway and rhythm of her walk, the exaggerated gestures of her anger, the contours of her laughter. He has liked her thin, and now is drawn to her heavier shape. It can't matter what she will ever become, he thinks, as he's, as he's, and he is surprised by this admission. Don't pay her, no, never mind, he whispers to Allison as they hold on to the pool's edge and eyeball Caroline. Allison plugs her nose and thrusts herself beneath the surface. He pitches his own, pinches his own nose and follows. They are staying at the Horseshoe Hotel and Casino in a pool view room number 309, the Antelope Wing. Jackpot seems the funniest of funny little nowhere places to Jeffrey, a wide spot along the highway, Highway 93 at the border of Idaho. Five casinos and clusters of trailer homes, 
He has been here a dozen times since he turned 21 to gamble, to drink, and feel like he was away from things known. Jackpot seems to Jeffrey perfect and unlikely all at once. And as he crouches within the water, feeling Allison tug at his shorts, it seems exactly appropriate, unquestionable for this moment in his life. All around them, this desert valley lulls and dips in patchy shades of brown encircling the barren golf course, the tiny airport, the trailer homes, and short apartment buildings. The wind pitches thin and warm. Jets trace contrails marking X's in the seamless blue. The three of them rolled in this morning, sitting hunched and tired in the Pontiac. They had driven up Highway 93 through the night the four windows fully down, pulling the dense night air around them, the guiding silver moon barely lighting the straightaways. Caroline said they couldn't afford a true vacation, that they had to get back to the apartment, back to work, but they felt they had to have something to top off this remarriage in Vegas, this sudden togetherness. And the poolside cocktails, the swing with Allison, the tingle and burn of sunshine on his chest, his face, Jeffrey believes this is all something, even if it is in jackpot. He slips out of the pool, leaving Allison behind. A damned fish, he says, sitting in the pillowed chair beside Caroline. My girl's got gills. I've been taking her to lessons. God, she's amphibious. Caroline rolls her eyes. These people here, she says, scrunching up her nose, eyeballing the scene. Dotted around the pool are four older couples and a cluster of heavyset women reading books with their bent paper covers, drinking orange and red drinks. A younger couple, the man with a short beard and silver necklace, the bony woman in a white bikini beside him. They sit dangling their shins in the deep end. It's a small pool, and Allison is the only child here. Well, it's not Mandalay Bay, Jeffrey says. Clearly, she says. You got a beer for me? Maybe we should just put it on the card. Should have stayed there. That's a load, he says. Caroline hands him a beer from the six-pack cooler. The can is cold across his palms. He snaps it open and takes a full swallow. We've tried that before. Caroline closes her eyes, then smiles, and opens her eyes again. How do you stay so skinny? She pokes at Jeffrey's ribcage. She touches at his wet hair. And we should get you a cut this week. I'm just built skinny. Look at this, she says, turning her hip out, grabbing at her left butt cheek. Grade A, Jeffrey says, a fine piece. Caroline snorts, takes a drink of her beer, and she le leans to kiss him. He leans into her, too, as he hears Allison's wet feet padding toward them. Ooch, each, Allison says, hot as Hades. Allison sits on Jeffrey's lap, and he asks Caroline to hand him another beer. Drinking a lot today? It's an occasion, he says, and he holds the can to Allison's, Allison's neck. Ah, she says, an occasion, Caroline says, and they touch their beers together. How does a person just get bigger? She grabs at the flesh of her thigh. Cell regeneration, Jeffrey says, genetic history? What's to stop you from just growing and regenerating then, Caroline says, just widening out all over the place. What's to stop me from becoming 10 me's? We could do with 10 U's, Jeffrey says. Isn't that right? He nods to Allison. She nods back and looks toward the couple at the pool's edge. So that's how you feel now, Caroline says? Just about. Well, I'll ask you again when I, when I become 10 me's. Allison turns to Caroline. Gravity will stop you, she says, from becoming 10 U's. Across the pool, two of the older men stand shirtless above the deep end. They look to each other gather themselves and leap, cannonballing into the bright water. That's probably right, Jeffrey says, but it doesn't matter if it isn't. Gravity, Caroline says, it keeps us small, Allison says. In the room, Jeffrey shakes his head and hops on one foot, trying to jar the water from his ear. What are you playing tonight, Caroline asks. Slots, Allison says, Kino. No, he says, still hopping, watching Allison stand beside the surging colors of the television game show. Damned ears plugged up. Craps, Allison says, and she jumps up and down beside Jeffrey, sticking her finger in her ear. The horseshoe is 
you know, it has $2.21, Caroline says. That's where you'll find me, he says, at least to start with. Maybe roulette, she says, walking toward the window. Not too heavy, though. Rents up in a week. I want to play Wheel of Fortune, Allison says, or Jeopardy. You can watch cable television, our Caroline says. How's that? We'll play Keno at dinner, Jeffrey <clears throat> lets her know. And he quits jumping, and the water is still in his ear. What if it stays there forever, he thinks. Could he ever get used to this tedious sensation, the muffled tension of sound waves pressing through the water? It's terrible. You know what I heard once, he says, pulling Alice into his lap as he sits on the polyester bed slip. I heard about a woman who had hiccups. She had them for 23 years, couldn't lose them for anything. Wow, Allison says, faking a hiccup. That's like magic. And they gave her brain damage, too. Because she held her breath all the time? Because she drank water all the time? Don't believe any of it, Caroline says. Your dad has a million. Eventually, you'll hear all that you need to hear. Now it was because she got so mad about the hiccups that she kept banging her head against the wall, Jeffrey says. 23 years, Allison says. Holy moly. It's true, Jeffrey says. She lived in Baltimore. Dinner is the Cactus Pete's International Buffet across the street from the horseshoe. The waiting line snakes into the casino, and the three of them find their place to stand. Caroline holds Allison's hand. Jeffrey looks around, scopes the action. Orange and yellow lights flare, ride the current of loud, hollow noise, bells and horns and whistles into the dim casino air. Jeffrey stands utterly still, feels the flashes of sound pulse through him. It is early and not too busy yet. The slot machines stand polished and orderly, lined up with one or two older women among them, feeding bills in, pushing buttons. The weighty ring of spilling coins sporadically rises, spreads through the casino. Looks like people are eating, Caroline says, not gambling yet. Will you play Monopoly? Will you play that slot for me, Allison says. Maybe later, Jeffrey says. Which machine is the lucky one? That one, Allison says, pointing. Caroline pulls her close, and Jeffrey looks across the casino floor at the uniformed de dealers standing, hands behind their backs, at empty tables. He wonders, how do they get here? How do they like living in Jackpot, Nevada? Has the action, the movement become ordinary, or does it wind them up as it does me? Might they wish they had never even come? He looks back to Caroline and Allison amidst the cascade of gl glittering light. He wonders, as he has, what it might be like to pick himself up, leave his job and friends and life, and come work here and live as a new anonymous man in a small foreign place. He watches a young blonde dealer scratch her nose with a long blue painted fingernail, and his chest feels hollow and sad. Jeffrey squints, stares, tried to tries to read the woman's name tag, Heidi, Helga, Helen, as he feels his daughter tug his pant leg. Caroline is wiping Allison's face with a tissue. Allison is making a face, and Jeffrey thinks he is pleased enough to have returned to Caroline, that they have returned to each other and their daughter. You gonna go Mexican or Italian, Jeffrey says, or maybe Chinese. Italian, Caroline says. I'm going global, Allison says, as sirens and bells rise from the hidden row of slots. They can hear a woman yelling, 10 grand, 10 fucking grand. Jeffrey's heart speeds, his fingers tremble and sweat, and they all raise their eyebrows, shrug, smile at each other. After dinner, they walk Allison to the room, dress her in the night, in, the, in her nightgown, the one with tigers and elephants on it. Allison protests quietly, but she is tired. Jeffrey turns on the television, and the three of them sit and watch a black and white noir film where a man staggers, holds his heart, and dies bloodlessly. Jeffrey opens a beer, hands one to Caroline. She nods to him. The lights are dim, and she goes for a menthol. Allison falls asleep quickly. Jeffrey looks from the television to Allison. She is breathing so evenly, her thin ribs wrapping her heart, her tired head, something like his. Jeffrey is certain he will never sleep like this again. 
He looks to Caroline, who is watching the flickering action of the television, and he is worried for them and for all of this, and he isn't sure why. You ready, he asks, standing, and she snubs her cigarette in the glass ashtray she holds, and they go. That water's finally out of my ear, Jeffrey nods, walks to Allison, kisses her soft, freckled hand and cheek as Caroline stands above, the, above them. That's a relief. She's wiped, Jeffrey says, feeling his quick, rough pulse beat against Allison's. She's gone to this world, Caroline says, tapping the top of Jeffrey's head. Let's get going. Make, they make their way to the horseshoe casinos, horseshoes casino, where they find seats at the $2 blackjack table. The casino is small and low, paneled in grainy wood, a different look than Cactus Pete's. The room seems crowded at first to Jeffrey, full of action possibilities, as shouts and laughter burst from dim corners, from men huddled over craps, the craps pit, or women playing Spanish 21. But as he sits and begins playing, he realizes that it is temporary. The jumping lights, the thrumming music seeping from the bar, the mingling, then mingling with the slot machine bells, a chaotic artifice, is all a sweet falsity. They play for two hours, Caroline winning, Jeffrey holding near even, the waitress brings them Cape Cods, and they tip her 50 cent pieces. Hit me in the right place, Caroline says, and she squeals when the dealer lays a five of diamonds on top of her two eights. Jeffrey slips his cards under his red $5, $5 chip, the dealer hits on 14, slapping a jack of clubs onto the table, busting. Jeffrey nods his head when the dealer sets a red chip in front of him. Jeffrey stacks his chips, $45, stands, stretches, then drops the chip into his pocket. He is so tired, but he holds no want for sleep. He watches Caroline play and win three hands. He taps her shoulder. I think I'm going, he nods toward the door. I'm gonna go check out the cactus action. All right, Caroline says, I can't leave this seat. Keep it hot, he says, bending to kiss her. Across the street, the casino is full and seems brighter to Jeffrey than before. Shouts rise from the craps pit and the dull musical weave fills the yellow air. An R&B band is playing above the half moon bar. The bartender's pouring drinks at the lead, as the lead singer shuffle steps just over their heads. Jeffrey sits at the bar Feeds a 20 into the video poker machine, orders a wild turkey rocks. He drinks it fast and feels new blood course his neck, his face. He raises his hand, orders another. Jeffrey lights a cigarette, spins in his seat and looks out across this room. So much movement here. He feels it seeping into him, winding him up, but he feels he is not part of it. He watches a gray-haired woman dance with the band's lead singer as he traverses the crowd with his cordless microphone. My girl would love to dance and boogie like that, he says toward the man sitting beside him. She dances like a solid gold girl. You remember solid gold? And he smiles, thinking of Allison sleeping, clutching a piece that he craves. You wonder how anybody sleeps after being in here. The man beside him points to his ear, then at his, then at his bed. Then at the band, he can't hear, and Jeffrey nods. He gulps his drink, stands, I'm a newlywed, he says. The man beside him shrugs, wed. Jeffrey presses the, the cash out button and $20 and quarters rains loudly from the machine. Jeffrey scoops him into a plastic bucket and he begins walking the casino floor, watching the men playing table games, watching the cocktail girls balance trays of empty and full drinks. He cradles his bucket of quarters as he finishes his cigarette and walks toward the front door. Jeffrey sidles across the street, feeling a little wobbly. He thinks he might want another drink, but he's not sure. Maybe I should go find that woman, the dealer, he mumbles to himself. But he decides no, he's not gonna do that. Decides to let her have her own fun, his wife, his new wife, his old wife across the street. He'll have plenty of time to see her now. Jeffrey, instead, walks to their hotel and climbs the stairs, then hops the short poolside fence to go sit beside the water. 
He is the only one there. It is dark all around, but for two pool lights, the water is a gem. He sits in the same chair he sat in hours ago, lights another cigarette, begins to think of how the time was without Caroline. There was only one other woman, and it was something he could not enjoy, Danielle, a woman he met on the street buying a sandwich on her lunch break. She was thin and dark. He took her to a, the bar a few times. She wanted to hold his hand as they drank. They shot pool and threw darts, and she took him to her house where they undressed each other, and she stood naked over him as he lay on the blue sheets of her bed. Her shape further shadowed the heavy air between them. Danielle whispered, toward, whispered, whispered words he never heard into the lavender and sweet peach smells of her room, smells that for Jeffrey held Caroline, held Allison, dissembling his movements and his desires. After two weeks, Jeffrey couldn't see her again, and he told her straight. Danielle said she understood, though it was clear to Jeffrey that she didn't. Beside the pool now, Jeffrey leans into the chair's soft fabric. The stars are a smeared contrast, shifting in his half-drunk vision. He wonders how maybe they've ruined things for each other, Caroline and he, taking the pleasure from what should be pleasurable. But, he supposes, there is a balance to all this. He reaches into his quarter bucket, lifts a coin, and tosses it into the green-blue water. It plunks hollowly and flutters to the pool's floor. He throws three more coins, wondering if this is a wishing well, realizing he has forgotten to wish for anything. Across the way, a room light pulses on, he sees a figure open the blinds and the window, then turn away. Jeffrey recognizes the woman, he thinks, for, from somewhere. She returns to the window with a lit cigarette, and his chest tightens, realizing it is Caroline, of course. Jeffrey catcalls her, whistles. Caroline waves back silently with her cigarette in hand, the cherry tracing shapes. He stands up, walks to the pool's lip, Fanes falling in, tiptoes along, play acting like he's on a tightrope. Clutching the quarter bucket in one hand, there is no sound but the shifting coins, and he feels strangely like a man inside a television with the sound turned way down. Jeffrey stares at his shoes, balancing the edge, mint blue water, still warm pavement, and as he hears Allison laugh, he looks up smiling to see the two of them, these women he will always know, arm in arm, pointing his direction. There you go, thanks. We'll see if anybody has any questions for Chris before we retire into the evening. Anybody? Questions? There's one back there. I see a hand up. Where are my characters drawn from? Well, this is actually based on a true story. It's somewhat, no. It's actually was uh, inspired by a, a, a good friend of mine who was, I didn't know, had been remarried. Uh, I met him after he had been remarried and had a daughter, and then um, I found out that he had actually been divorced, and their daughter was sort of born in that meantime, and then they got remarried and have gone on to live quite, you know, a successful life as a married couple, mostly, as it's, you know, anyway, that whole thing. But, um, yeah, so that was kind of the original inspiration. Um, and then maybe a little bit of myself sort of, like, doing some research in uh, Jackpot, Nevada, and actually the strangeness of it, like I mentioned at the beginning. So, but, yeah, the genesis of it was just in that. So, with, with this story in particular, but... But... In Naked Me, the... Oh, okay, that particular story. Yeah, there's some truth in that, too, I guess. That's actually, yeah, that's a story I've given to some of my students um, in the past, uh, and I tried to get them to decipher, or at least guess, what was actually autobiographical and what was not, because there was actually a fair amount that is and a fair amount that's not, so it kind of that... I mean, because a lot of students go for 
seemingly they go for, you know, trying to tell their own stories through fiction, and usually they kind of like stay too close to the, to the actual facts of the matter, and the actual events, and don't kind of let their creative mind go take the actual events and then go fly with them. Um, uh, so for me, I wanted to hopefully teach them a lesson through you know, telling them that, yes, I did gamble in this particular building. I did play cards there. I did teach as a, an adjunct and still do, sadly enough. But um, then uh, I saw, um, yeah, and that, and I did actually witness in that story, if you guys haven't read the particular title story, but there was a woman who is sort of a voyeuristic, I shouldn't say voyeuristic, an exhibitionist, you know, sort of in the voyeurs across the street, and that is a real thing. Um, but I didn't actually make the bet and go across the street and, and you know, get back my money by having sex with this woman, though, you know, I you know, obviously thought about it because I wrote about it, but I wrote it through the fictional characters, you know, instead of point of view. But So there was a lot of actual real stuff. It's set in Boise, and... Um, kind of the girlfriend, the, uh, I think I call her Julianne in that story, but um, which is a name I always seem to go back to for some reason, but it's kind of a mashup of a bunch of girls, women that I've, you know, sort of had relationships with, so it was that. But yeah, there's a lot of like autobiographical stuff. Then there's other stories, you know, I mean, I guess like the, the first one that Bill's trailer was with, you know, that uh, one thing to take, it's just, it was based on a place that I know in Shilshol Bay and this, this old, Burger stand, Gordo's, but um, the, the rest of it was just all fictional. But sure, yeah. Does anybody else have uh, anything? If not, that's cool. If if so, we can talk afterwards, like Martin said. But yeah, I, I totally want to thank everybody and thanks Al, by the way, Mr. Heathcock. Um, I do appreciate that, and everybody who showed up and has been showing up all summer. This has been really great, and it is kind of odd. My friend Carrie Seymour, who I don't think showed up tonight, just had a protest because she was like, really, you're going to read your own curated event? That seems kind of lame. And I was like, well, they asked me to, so okay, I'm going to do it. And plus, it's, I mean, really good timing, I guess, with the book and everything, but it was great that the modern folks asked me to actually read when we first started this and to be part of it, so... Um, I didn't put myself on the docket. They did, I guess. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. But thanks so much for, for everybody, you know, like I said before. And uh, have a good night. And tip your uh, servers and your bartenders. And yeah, thanks. Campfire Stories, recorded live from the Modern Hotel and produced by Radio Boise. Thanks for listening. <laughs>